Father, we've just sung that it's not by works of righteousness which our own hands have done, but we are saved by sovereign grace abounding through the Son. And we pray that this morning as we consider these wonderful truths that you would help me to preach on them and that you would help all of us to understand them and to receive them by faith in our Lord Jesus. We pray this for your glory and in the Saviour's name we ask it. Amen. Well, if possible, uh, please do have that bit of the Bible open that we read earlier on in our service. It's from the book of Titus. It's chapter 3, and we're just going to focus on verses 3 to 8 this morning. Verses 3 to 8. And the verses we're looking at this morning, as you may know, are a section of a letter that the Apostle Paul sent to a friend of his, a man called Titus, who was in Crete, and he was involved in leading the church there on the island of Crete. And so Paul is writing this letter to him to give him some guidance, give him some help in how Titus should do that. What should Titus be teaching these Christians in Crete about what they should believe and how they should live their lives as Christian men and women. And the bit of the letter that we're going to focus on just briefly this morning really gets to the very heart of the Christian message. And as well as that, as you may have noticed, it does relate to baptism as well, which is helpful for us to consider this morning. So let's look at these verses together. Let's see what Paul has to say to Titus. And I'd like to divide the the section into two very basic parts. Uh, To start with, just looking at verse 3, which we could entitle, What We Were. And then we'll spend the rest of our time looking at verses 4 to 8, which we can entitle, What God Has Done About It. That's what Paul is saying in this section, basically, in a nutshell. What we were and what God has done about it. So firstly, what we were. And it has to be said that verse 3 doesn't make for pretty reading, does it? Paul piles up these words and phrases to describe what he was like and what Titus was like and indeed what every Christian was like before they became a Christian. Uh, The first word that he uses to describe what we were like is that we were foolish. Now in the Bible, uh, to be foolish doesn't mean that you're stupid. It doesn't mean that you have a low IQ and you're not very intelligent. Now when the Bible talks about someone being foolish, it means this. They have an outlook on life where God is not in the picture. An outlook on life where God is not in the picture. So someone can be a very intelligent person. Uh, Someone can be uh, very successful in their job. They can have a, a glittering career maybe. And yet they can still be foolish. Because their whole approach to life is to look at things without God in the picture. 
uh, the way that they conduct their relationships, the way that they operate in business, the goals that they have, the aspirations they have in life, all carried out without reference to God. And Paul says this is what we once were. There was a time before we became a Christian when our approach to life was to put me at the center and to put God out of the picture. Now we might still have said that we believed in God and we might even have still gone to church. And yet truth be told, God didn't really enter into our thinking. And so when it came to making a decision about how we would live our life, we shoved God to one side. We acted as if he didn't exist. And then the next word that Paul uses is to say that we were disobedient. In other words, we lived by our own rules rather than living by God's rules. With God out of the picture, We took it upon ourselves to decide how to live. And so rather than listening to what God says about how we should live, we put ourselves in charge of what we think is right and wrong. If God said, don't do that, but we wanted to do it, we went ahead and did it. If God said, do this, and we didn't want to do it, we didn't do it. We were disobedient to God. And then thirdly, we were led astray. That is, we were deceived by our own sinfulness, by the devil's lies, by the world's empty promises. We were deluded by these things. We let them lead us and they led us astray. And where did they lead us? Well, they led us into slavery. Paul says we were slaves to various passions and pleasures. We thought that living by our rules and saying yes to everything would make us happy, would make us free. And yet very soon we discovered that actually we couldn't say no to these things. It wasn't freedom at all. It was slavery. As Jesus puts it, the one who sins is a slave to sin. It is a pretty bleak outlook on what life was like before you were a Christian, isn't it? We were foolish, disobedient, led astray, and enslaved. We put God out of our thinking. We lived by our own rules. We listened to and followed the devil's lies, the world's empty promises, and our own selfish, sinful desires. And we became enslaved. And the rest of verse 3 describes the impact that all of this had upon our relationships with those around us. And the impact on our relationships was utterly devastating. Now you don't need me to tell this to you because you know it from your own experience. But sin tears relationships apart. It always does. Sin left unchecked 
will destroy your marriage, it will break your family, it will tear apart your friendships. Look at what Paul says here about the damage that sin does, in particular to relationships. Paul says, we were passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Now, malice and envy are like ugly, non-identical twins. Malice is wanting there to be something bad in someone else's life. Whereas envy is hating the fact that there's something good in someone else's life because you want that for yourself. And so these attitudes lead us to, to hating others and being hated by them. Do you see, sin is what destro- destroys your relationships with those around you. And worse still is the fact that sin, of course, destroys your relationship with God. As we've seen already, sin is putting God out of the picture. Sin is rejecting him. Sin is living by your own rules. Sin is what sets us against God. And worse still, it is what sets God against us because we deserve his punishment for the way that we've lived. And you see, Paul is saying to Titus, this is what we were, us Christians. If you're a Christian this morning, don't ever think, not even for a moment, that you're a Christian because you're better than people who are not Christians. It's just not true, is it? This is what we were. We were foolish, disobedient, led astray, and enslaved. Our relationships were marked with malice and envy and hatred. We were facing God's punishment for this forever. That's what we were. Now that's the bad news. And in the rest of the the passage that we're looking at this morning, we get to the good news. And Paul tells us what God has done about this. What God has done about it. And of course, God could have done nothing about it. God could have just left us in our sin. He could have left us to all of our sin's eternal consequences. And here is the wonder of the good news at the heart of the Bible, that out of God's goodness and loving kindness and mercy towards undeserving people like us, he saved us from this. That's what Paul says at the beginning of verse 5, isn't it? He saved us. And how did he save us? Well, once again, Paul reminds us, it is absolutely nothing to do with us deserving it. He says it's not because of works done by us in righteousness. Now, people often have this strange notion about being a Christian, that it's about being a good person. That it's about trying your hardest so that God will accept you. And so you've got to perform good works. You've got to maybe do religious things. And if you've lived a good enough life, then hopefully, fingers crossed, if you've done enough good things and enough religious things, God will let you into heaven when you die. But of course, nothing could be further from the truth. Could Paul make it any clearer than he does here? We're not saved because of works done by us. So how has God saved us then? Well, notice that in verse 4, Paul says that the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. And so we should ask, when did 
that goodness and that loving kindness of God appear? When did it become visible so that people could see it? And of course the answer is that the goodness and the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared in Jesus Christ. God sent his son into the world to rescue us from our sin and from all of its consequences forever. And how did Jesus do that? Well, he did that, firstly, by becoming one of us. He is God the Son. He's always existed. He's fully God. He's the one who made everything. And then 2,000 years ago, he became a human being. He was born as one of us. He became our brother. He appeared on earth as a human. And then he lived the life that we humans should have lived but have failed to live. And as we've seen already, we were foolish. We were disobedient. We were led astray and enslaved. But Jesus lived the perfect life. He obeyed God's law perfectly. Never said a bad word. Never did a bad thing. Never thought an evil thought. His was the only perfect life that has ever been lived. The only life that actually deserves heaven. And then out of sheer love, he died the death that we deserve to die for our sin. All the punishment that we deserve for rejecting God. All the punishment we deserve for putting God out of the picture and living by our own rules and going our own way. Jesus suffered the punishment for that on the cross in our place. He died in order to take the full punishment for all of our sin once and for all. And then three days later, rose again from the dead, showing that all our punishment was paid for and death was defeated. And you see, it's all about what Jesus has done, not what we have done. The goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared in the person of Jesus and he saved us. Not because of any works done by us, but according to his own mercy toward us. And maybe you're thinking to yourself, well, Jesus, of course, lived a long time ago and he lived a long way away. And so how can what he did really be of any benefit to me living here all these 2,000 years later? How can what Jesus did then benefit me now and forever? And the answer to that question is that God, the Holy Spirit, is the one who applies to us all the benefits of what Jesus did. And in the next few verses, the Apostle Paul describes some of those benefits that come to Christians through the work of God the Holy Spirit in their lives. Now just very quickly, I want to mention four of the benefits that, that Paul mentions here. Firstly, he says, we are raised to new life. That's what Paul is talking about when he mentions the washing of regeneration, or we, we might say rebirth, and renewal of the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. And of course, this is where this passage connects to baptism, isn't it? Because as we've been reminded already this morning, baptism is a picture of this. A picture of the Holy Spirit being poured out upon us so that in Jesus, we can be washed of our sin. We can be given new life in relationship with God. We can be given a new start. Now, of course, baptism doesn't automatically do this to us as if it's some kind of magic trick. 
No, baptism is a picture of this washing from sin and this gift of new life through the Holy Spirit. And it's a picture that God uses and which is received by faith in Jesus. John Stock paraphrases it like this. He says, God saved us through a rebirth and renewal which were outwardly dramatized in our baptism but inwardly effected by the Holy Spirit. And beforehand, we were spiritually dead. Before the Holy Spirit did this work in our lives, we were spiritually dead. But because Jesus has died for us and risen again, and because the Holy Spirit has applied that work of Jesus to us, we are raised to new life with him, life forever in relationship with him. And this new life also brings with it a new status. And so secondly, notice we're given a new status. Now there are two words that Paul uses to describe our new status. The first is the word justified. Justified is a bit of a technical word. It is a a legal declaration. So imagine it like this. Imagine a court of law. And the judge might look down on the person who is in the dock and the judge may make the declaration that this person is justified. And what it means is that the judge is saying, this person is right in my sight. There is no punishment for them. Their legal status is that they are innocent and they're free to go as someone who has kept the law. That's the the kind of idea that Paul has in mind when he says we're justified. And of course it should make us ask, well, how on earth can... God the judge, give to people like us this status of being justified? How can he declare that we are innocent in his sight, deserving no punishment whatsoever, as one who has kept the law? Because if verse 3 is right, then none of us is innocent. None of us has kept God's law. All of us were foolish, disobedient, led astray, and enslaved to sin. And so it's obvious, isn't it? God should declare us guilty on our own two feet. God should send us off to our rightful punishment. How on earth can God declare people like us justified? No punishment, free to go as one who has kept the law. And once again, it's not because of what we have done. It's about what Jesus has done for us in our place. And that's what Paul means when he says we're justified by his grace, by God's undeserved kindness. Someone has described it like this. Justification is that act of God the Father whereby he counts our sins to be Christ's and Christ's righteousness to be ours. It is the opposite of condemnation. It implies deliverance from the curse of God because that curse was placed on Christ at the cross. It means forgiveness, full and free. It is God's free gift, the fruit of sovereign grace, and not in any way the result of human goodness or accomplishment. It brings peace to the soul, a peace that passes all understanding. It's a wonderful thing to know, isn't it? If you're a Christian this morning, you can know that God has already announced his verdict on your life, all of it. And so things are not in the balance for you. You're not living your life worrying to yourself. I wonder if God is going to accept me or not. 
Maybe I need to, to try and do some more good things. Maybe I need to try and do a few more religious things. And those things will make God accept me. No, do you see Paul is saying God's verdict is in. And the verdict is that you are justified by his grace. Because all your sin was paid for by Jesus at the cross once and for all. And his perfection, his righteousness is counted as yours. In God's sight, you're innocent. In God's sight, there's no punishment for you. In God's sight, you're considered as one who has kept the law perfectly, just as Jesus did. That's the first word that describes our status before God. We're justified. And then the second word that Paul uses to describe this new status that we've come into is that we are heirs. And of course, that word implies, doesn't it, that we've been made God's children. We've been brought into his family. We've been adopted by God. We can call God our father. And because we are God's children, we are therefore also heirs. The inheritance is coming to us. The inheritance that rightfully belongs to Jesus is shared with us. And what is that inheritance? Well, that brings us to the third benefit that I want us to focus on just briefly. And that is that we're filled with a new hope. We're filled with a new hope. Paul says we become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Now we saw earlier on, didn't we, that by the work of the Holy Spirit, we've already been raised to new life. We're spiritually alive. So we're already those who have eternal life. And yet, you see, Paul is reminding us here that there is so much yet to experience, so much to look forward to in the future, when we will enter into the full experience of eternal life, the full enjoyment of God forever. And in our former state, we looked to the things of this world to satisfy us. We became slaves to various passions and pleasures. But now we're filled with a new hope because we know that a glorious future awaits us. Someone has put it like this. When that future day arrives, we shall rejoice in the richest possible fellowship with God in Christ basking in the sunshine of his love and partaking to the fullest extent possible for man of his joy and glory. If you're a Christian person this morning, that is your inheritance. That's what's coming to you. And it's all paid for by Jesus. And it's all guaranteed to you by God's unbreakable promise. And sometimes people object to this. Sometimes people say, well, how can you Christians say that the inheritance of heaven is guaranteed to you now? Because if it, it is really all about what Jesus has done and it's not about what you have to do to be good enough for it. Well, doesn't that mean that you can just go and, and live however you like and it, it doesn't matter? And that's why the fourth and the final benefit that Paul mentions is so important. It's important we don't forget this. Because notice, fourthly, that we're also led into a new lifestyle. Led into a new lifestyle. That's what Paul's saying in verse 8, isn't it? The saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. And so here's the difference. As Christians, 
We're not saved by good works. But we are saved for good works. And the Holy Spirit who raised us to new life and who brought us into this new status so that we can be filled with a new hope, he also leads us into a new lifestyle. He gives us new desires. He gives us greater strength. He gives us the ability to live changed lives, turning away from that old lifestyle where we were foolish, disobedient, led astray, and enslaved to sin. And instead, we have this new life, this new lifestyle, wherein we're careful to devote ourselves to good works, living in line with what God says, out of gratitude to him and for his glory. And of course, no Christian does this perfectly. As Christians, we still mess up. We still make mistakes. And yet, even when we do mess up badly, we know that we're forgiven. And with God's help, we keep going, seeking to live lives that are pleasing to him. It is a great thing to be a Christian, isn't it? To know that despite what you once were, God has done something about it. And put simply, he saved you. He saved you. Out of his goodness and his loving kindness, Jesus Christ came and he lived and died and rose again for you. And now all the benefits that are found in Jesus. He's raised you to new life with God in which your sin is forgiven and washed away. He's brought you into this new status of being declared right in God's eyes and made one of God's children. He's filled you with a new hope, this certain hope of eternal life with Jesus. And he leads you into a new lifestyle, set free from your old sin and devoting yourself to good works. It is a great thing to be a Christian, isn't it? And maybe it is the case that you're here this morning and you're, you're thinking to yourself, well, I want all of that for myself. I want that for myself because I know deep down that verse 3 actually describes the life that I'm living at the moment. I'm living my life without God in the picture. I'm disobedient to what he has said. I'm led astray and I'm enslaved to different passions or pleasures or whatever. And if I'm honest, there is malice and envy and hatred in the way that I relate to other people. And maybe I keep that covered up most of the time, especially when I'm in polite company. But I know that those things are there. How can I be saved from all of that? How can I be set free from sin and all of its consequences forever? The answer is given to you in verse 8, isn't it? What phrase does Paul use to describe Christians in that verse? Well, very simply, he describes them as those who have believed in God. Not those who have got their act in order, not those who have cleaned up their lives a bit, not those who are trying to be good people, those who are trying to get into God's good books, not religious types, no, very simply, those who have believed in God. 
And to believe in God means that you accept that his word is true. You believe all the promises that he has made about Jesus. And you put your trust in Jesus and what he has done to save you. It means you look away from anything that you've done as the basis of your relationship with God. And you look to Jesus. You look to what he has done. And you put all of your trust in him to save you. And when a person has done that, they can know that they are raised to new life with God. They're given this wonderful new status before God, right in his eyes, and one of his children. Acquitted by God the judge, adopted by God the Father. They're filled with this new hope of eternity with God. And then they're led into this new lifestyle, pleasing to God. And it's all because of Jesus and what he has done. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for these wonderful verses from Paul's letter to Titus. And we thank you that it shows us with great honesty what we were. We were foolish and disobedient. We were led astray. We were enslaved. Our relationships with one another were fractured by sin and we were facing your right punishment for all of these things. And yet we praise and we thank you that you did not leave us in that, but that your goodness and loving kindness appeared in the person of Jesus Christ, your son, who became a human, who lived a life that was perfect and then took all of our punishment on the cross before rising again. And it was all because of your great mercy that Jesus saved us and not because of any works that we have done. And we praise you that the Holy Spirit has brought these things to us. He has raised us to new life with Jesus. We've been given this amazing new status of being declared right in your eyes by grace alone. And we've been adopted as your children. And we look forward to the full enjoyment of our inheritance in the future. Help us now, we pray, to live lives in which, by the Spirit's help, we are devoted to good works as an expression of our gratitude to you and for your glory. And for any who have not yet done so, help them to believe in you so that all of these things can be theirs as well. We pray all these things in Jesus' name and for your glory. Amen.